Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist. I'm a dietitian. I'm a professor. And I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. It is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and adjunct instructor at Rocky Mountain University, and now also Georgia Southern University as of a couple days ago. So I'm teaching the NSCA CSCS prep class. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Everyone, uh, after the break, we're going to check in with another CSCS, um, uh, Mary Catherine Powers, MC Powers, is going to join us, and she's going to talk about transitioning how she went from pretty high-level runner to university strength coach and then back to running uh, and how those, those two things have influenced her and some of the challenges she might have felt as a woman in that scenario, you know, one sport versus the other. All that kind of thing. Lots of um, interesting tangents from that. But that's after the break. First, we have a buildup of news and mail. And so we're going to get to it. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This first one here um, was from Twitter. And I've blown this up so I can read it, but I can barely read it. It was uh, a listener tip about some information that came through, I think it's consumerlab.com, and they were essentially suggesting that, and I'm just I'm going to summarize this because I don't have all the information, that controlled doses of vitamin D are probably better than taking one giant whopping shot of vitamin hmm. D. Now, we've talked about this in the past because some physicians, they rather just, you know, mega dose you like all at once and then move on kind of thing as opposed to um, you know getting your uh, daily amount of two or three thousand a day uh, here is talking about I'm trying to read this 800 IU of vitamin D daily uh, they were giving it to postmenopausal women and the reason for some of this of course is because estrogen's not in the picture anymore uh, and in some ways that's a control issue right so uh, this was a, a study done in Turkey. But anyway, there was small uh, but statistically significant increases in muscle strength when they were given 800 IU of vitamin D daily. Okay, Now, it says, in contrast, a study in women, uh, a similar group of women, uh, maybe even a little bit older still, actually showed increased fractures when they had a high single annual dose of 500,000 IUs of vitamin hmm. D3. Uh, so... And again, it was sort of interesting. Um, I have a, other abstracts. I, I can't remember if this is exactly the same one from this meeting or not. Randomized study of the effect of D3 supplementation on skeletal muscle function uh, in fallers. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before. Like, There's a lot of interest that if vitamin D can make you stronger uh, and help your bone strength, then maybe you... You know, you fall less, and then when you do fall down, you don't break things. And I know if we have a lot of intense, 
young uh, lifters, they might be like, well, let's not dwell too much on the elderly here, Lowry, but it's it, interesting discussions here going back and forth at this meeting, but I think the takeaway for me was, and Mike, you can chime in on this a little bit, but they were saying increase in muscle strength uh, in the original um, tweet here with 800 IUs a day, but the once-a-year giant dose just didn't do it. Now, to me as a nutritionist, that's not that surprising. To a pharmacist or a physician, they might be a little bit more open to, hey, either way, we're getting them a, a giant dose. You know, it's fat-soluble. It's it's not like a daily in-and-out kind of thing. But to me, uh, it mirrors eating, right? If you're going to do 800 mm-hmm. IUs a day or even 2,000 or 3,000, it kind of gives your body that presence of vitamin D while that those physiological systems do their thing are in their state of flux what do you what do you think about that yeah i mean if i were to guess i would say probably doing an oral dose daily is going to more kind of mimic what you would see in natural quote-unquote sources from the sunlight so your body's going to convert you know sunlight into basically vitamin d through a bunch of different pathways mm-hmm. um and in the study, they were both oral doses, right? They were not IM or intramuscular, correct? Um, I can't tell from this. It just says a high single annual dose of 500,000 units. And that's really high. <laughs> so. Yeah, because there's a study I found that's looking at the pharma, pharmacokinetic evaluation of a single intramuscular high dose versus an oral long-term dose. This is using um, deciferol. And they did uh, either an 8,000 IU oral dose daily for 84 days in kind of a four-week dose escalation setting. And they compared that to an intramuscular injection of 100,000 IUs basically just given once. I've got to think that's how you do it, the high dose. I mean, you can't do it orally, right? It's got to be intramuscular. I don't know how else you would really yeah, get exactly. the really high. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. said that there was uh, basically no difference in that looking at increases in serum 25-hydroxy. Uh, Hmm. They weren't looking okay. at anything else. They're just looking at the the PK of it. So exactly, yeah. yeah this um, because I'm kind of referring to two things: a Twitter feed and then one of the abstracts that we got sent. This abstract that I can actually read a little bit better. It says this is from uh, Luciana uh, M. Kangusu and colleagues here, but. Um, Hypovitaminosis D is common in postmenopausal women worldwide. Condition may cause muscle weakness and falls, in addition to some of the bone uh, information, of course. They did a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. 160 Brazilian uh, women uh, put them on 1,000 IUs a day for nine months, it looks like. Uh, they looked at muscle mass and hand grip strength and some chair, you know, functional tests, chair rise kinds of tests, and... Um, after nine months, average values of 25-hydroxy-D did increase, whereas they decreased slightly in the placebo group. Again, low vitamin D is, is common in a lot of people, probably seasonal. Um, in the vitamin D group, there was significant increased muscle strength of the lower limbs, again, in these chair-rise functional tests, uh, 25% increase in strength. So it's mm. interesting that it's not when you hear about the falls and this and that with vitamin D, this, again, it, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it harkens back to vitamin D probably helping muscular strength in some way. You know, um, being a hormone, you know, it's not that surprising. And especially when you're replacing something, if somebody's hypo, you know, 
Um, they have hypovitaminosis D. You know, they're low D. That this probably helps. The conclusion in this um, full abstract that I have, and again, I'm not even clear. I don't think it's exactly the same study, but the supplementation of vitamin D alone in fallers uh, provided significant protective factor against sarcopenia. Interesting, uh, with significant increases in muscle strength. Um, so, I don't know. It, again, you might say, well, if you're a young lifter, man or woman, this might not apply. And it's true. Specificity is a thing, population specificity. But two things are coming up here. One is both of these uh, tidbits from Twitter and then the full abstract that I have from the conference proceedings here uh, from that uh, Kangasu and colleagues. They're talking about how vitamin D probably helps with strength in older women. And then, like I said, the Twitter one also suggests that the high single dose might actually backfire. Uh, so, mm. I don't know. It, it, it's it, There's some stuff that needs teased apart here, right? Because, I mean, I take 2,000 IUs of vitamin D uh, in fall and winter months. I don't so much in the summer because, you know, I'm more in my lawn and a tank top and stuff. So, you know, um, probably don't need it so much in the summertime. But I am interested in it, right? There are some interesting meta-analyses and other things to suggest vitamin D is helpful. And though, so th- these two investigations looks like, yeah, it probably is helpful if you're uh, an older woman and you're low D. It might actually be related to strength. So you can interpret that however you want in a younger person. And also, like I said, that maybe more divided doses, metered doses over many months may be a better idea than a giant whack of intramuscular D once a year you know. yeah and then in older people or even just people in general i wonder about compliance if you go in and get a, a huge whack dose then you don't have to worry about compliance <laughs> yeah no right that's right you put it in remember, get up old to take your vitamin d every day <laughs> yeah uh, there's enough uh, in the literature to prompt me to go ahead and you know take d uh, especially in Ohio, you know, the CDC have said if you live north of Atlanta, you're probably at a latitude that you don't get enough of vitamin D, at least during you know parts of the year. And I mean, gosh, Mike, we live way north of Atlanta, uh, so I don't know. I, it's enough for me to to think. Yeah, I want to keep that. If if it can slow in any way, you know, at least it's suggestive that it may help slow the sarcopenia, muscle loss with aging, or help be supportive of strength in some way. Like I said, it's it's not going to hurt for me to take 2,000 units a day in the dark, dreary months here in Ohio. You know, so. Do you have a blood value that you're trying to get vitamin D at? No, like actually. think is best? No, because I do it for months at a time, you know, in fall and winter and early spring. Um, I just assume my 25-hydroxy-D are, are getting into a good range. You know, I mean, I I know that I can absorb it. I know that it's going to elevate my blood levels. I know that it's going to take two or 3,000 units, and it's going to take some time, right, weeks to do that. Um, and I just kind of leave it at that. I've never actually had my 25-hydroxy-D checked, to be honest. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, mine was pretty good last time. I guess if I had to pick a number, I'm, I'm still probably thinking on the higher end, you know, 50 to 70, somewhere in, in that range, but... Mm-hmm. I forgot. I think I told the story once a couple of years ago. I forgot and just kept taking vitamin D throughout the winter. Got my blood test in spring, and mine was like ninety-five. I was like, "Whoa, Whoa. what the hell?" Yeah. And then I realized that I took the same dose I did the as a winter before, 
but I took two or three trips where I went to a, a warm climate during the winter, which I hadn't. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, people need to realize their yeah their body will make thousands of units of vitamin D if you're in the sun for even you know a couple uh, hours you know not even. So especially if you go south where it's actually closer to the equator. <laughs> right. No. Right on. Um, yeah. I now I tend to take a little bit less vitamin D than you do. I think um, because don't you take like up to five thousand. Uh, a day, I did for a while. So what I'm I'm doing now is I haven't taken any really. Then I take like five thousand once a week, maybe. Okay. And then in the winter with travel and stuff, I'm actually probably not taking any, and I'll just see where my levels are. Okay. Since, you know, in November and January and March, I'll actually be in warmer climates. Um, so I'm thinking I may be able to to get by with you know not too much of a increase in supplementation. So oh, gotcha. I'm, Testing out and without it, and see where I'm at. Okay, I get it. Yeah, but I yeah, think two thousand is a day in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I basically just go with the upper level. You know, that's what the feds are sure. saying. Hey, two thousand. Don't worry about it. If you're interested in doing that, and like I said, I drop it out in the summer months because I I don't travel south into equatorial climates in the winter. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and so yeah. Okay, so that's a little bit of um, just some. Interesting ideas about vitamin D and dosing and, you know, muscle strength and whatnot. Um, This next one I just got. This is from the Institute of Food Technologists. Uh, British Twins Study Links Gut Processes to Abdominal Fat Buildup. Scientists at King's College London has shed new light on how processes in the gut affect the way in which fat is distributed around the waist. The researchers analyzed stool samples from 500 pairs of twins uh, to identify biomarkers for visceral abdominal fat buildup. So they study both identical and non-identical twins. That's how they're trying to get at how much of this is genetic, I think. Um, They found that more than two-thirds, so 68% of gut activity, was linked to environmental factors, and only 18% could be attributed to heredity. Mm. So... That's interesting because we've talked about that um, in recent years, about how much of this might be genetic, really. Um, Let's see. um, According to many, M-E-N-N-I, and other researchers on the project, their findings open the door to new approaches to fighting obesity by modifying diet and the gut microbiome uh, by the use of probiotics, drugs, or high-fiber diets. Now, this is where it gets interesting, increasingly interesting. Uh, quote, she continues, we found that omega-3, found in fish oil, is beneficial to humans indirectly because it makes gut bacteria produce other substances um, that might be anti-inflammatory. Uh, there's a metabolite here that comes from gut bacteria, N-carbamyl glutamate. So anti-inflammatory and quote-unquote good for us, she says. So one of the mechanisms by which Fish oils might have anti-inflammatory properties. And, Mike, of course, you and I are, are – we usually look at, like, incorporation into cell membranes or into tissues yeah. and direct, in, you know, com- competition with, with some of the inflammatory processes there. But this is saying also because they're, you know, stimulating the gut bacteria to produce anti-inflammatory compounds – it says a study currently in progress at King's College London will explore the effect of consuming fiber and fish oil on gut microbiome composition. 
and how that might fight obesity. Mm. Um, and then lastly, just as there's sort of a, a follow-up here at the end, it says um, the scientists at King's College London are also interested in testing methods using smart toilet paper to identify the chemicals produced by your gut microbes. Very interesting stuff. So if you need a fecal sample, oh. right, instead of trying to <laughs> poop into a cup, which it's got to be awkward, um, they're going to sell. Not fun. Yeah, they're going to sell toilet paper that I guess can either get the sample or even help analyze it, like smart toilet paper. Wow. Does it change colors or something? So like it turns blue for good bacteria and red for bad or something. <laughs> Um, it just says, by swabbing a used piece of toilet paper, we will get instant information about our chances of developing fat around the belly, etc., and, you know, be able to monitor gut micro, uh, microbial activity. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Uh, I, we'll see where that leads, everyone. Maybe down the road, <laughs> it'll be like a weird, you know, I can't really say dietary supplement, but some monitoring that we'll be doing. I mean, with Fitbits and everything else, and you know, I'm still waiting for Fitbits that can do continuous glucose monitoring, and I mean, yeah. to, be, to be widespread. And um, this is just a, another thing to to look at. You're like, I, I mean, imagine if, yeah, whether it changed color or I don't know if you just. It sounds like it, if it's smart, it's not just a way to get a sample, <laughs> you know, but but actually to get some information right on the spot. Um, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I just did another U-Biome kit just to see if there's any, I guess, sort of actionable information from it and not to throw them under the bus. But it was it was interesting, but it's like, I don't know what I do with it. You know, it said, you know, like, amount of probiotics you're using. It said very small. You know, it tells you diversity and some other stuff. And the results I got said it was generally good. And maybe if it's bad, it'll give you a different result. But, yeah. I don't know. Some of that stuff's interesting, but unless you get down to the super specific little microbes running around, I don't really know for most people how it's super actionable unless you're, you know, going really in depth and trying to fix some pathologies and things of that nature. Yeah. It makes me wonder about the sensitivity of it to detect certain things or even what yeah. you're looking at. I think that's kind of what these guys are looking at. I pulled the abstract from this British twin study, the fecal metabolome as a functional readout of the gut microbiome. This is by Jonas Zierer, Z-I-E-R-E-R, -E -E and colleagues in Nature Genetics. So high-end journal here. Just yeah. quick, quickly from the abstract, the fecal metabolome provides a functional readout of microbial activity. So again, they're looking at the metabolites, what's coming from the bacteria, and that's what's going to influence you know, your metabolism. It gets into your blood and crosstalk with the brain and all that. Yeah. Um, they examined 1,116 metabolites from 786 individuals in this twins study. But um, basically they were talking about uh, how this, these metabolites reflect then the microbiome, the bacteria that are in your gut, and how it's strongly associated with visceral fat mass, right, with deep gut fat mass. So... Um, I just think they're trying to tease apart, you know, not just what bacteria are in there, but what are they doing, you know, and literally zeroing in on which metabolites um, are most related to gut fat. So interesting. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. Um, 
Okay, so that's that one. Uh, next and last bit of news here before we get to a little bit of mail. Um, this is about shift work and how it in- increases insulin resistance. And I don't think you and I are going to be surprised at this at all. Um, yeah. But circadian misalignment induces fatty acid metabolism gene profiles and compromises insulin sensitivity in human skeletal muscle. Now, that's a lot. Um, This is by Jacob Weffers, W-E-F-E-R-S, and colleagues in um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. I'm always most interested in carb metabolism when they're looking directly at muscle tissue. You know, healthy people, muscle tissue, it's been estimated, should be the recipient of about 70% of the carbs you, you consume, you know, that kind of thing. I know that's ballpark, but I, I like that they're looking at muscle tissue. Here it says, shift workers are affected by circadian misalignment and have an increased risk to develop metabolic diseases such as type 2 diabetes. Here we show that during st- simulated short-term night shift work, insulin sensitivity at the level of skeletal muscle is decreased in male volunteers. We also find that the muscle molecular clock does not align rapidly to new behavioral cycles. So you, know, you start a shift work job or you're up all night um, for several nights in a row. I don't know, you're studying or whatever new job. Uh, you're not going to align very quickly on the muscle level apparently. Um, looking at the abstract itself uh, – We show that short-term circadian misalignment results in significant decrease in muscle insulin sensitivity due to a reduced skeletal muscle non-oxidative glucose disposal rate. In other words, not not just burning the the carbs, but you're not depositing them as well. Uh, I looked at the means here, quick calculation, 22% poorer non-oxidative glucose disposal. So 22% poorer uh, storage, if you will of the carbs that you eat in muscle tissue. Fasting glucose and free fatty acid levels, as well as sleeping metabolic rate, were also higher during circadian misalignment. And then they go on to just kind of point out in the intro here, our 24-hour culture, characterized by working and eating late, reduced sleep quantity and quality, and excessive light exposure at nighttime, should be considered as lifestyle factors that may negatively infect metabolic health. Um, so, yeah, 22% poorer carb metabolism, if you will, carb storage. Um, and it's you're not likely to adjust to those swing shifts or those, you know, uh, shift work very quickly. Yeah, that's one thing when I did the, the Flex Diet certification, I got a whole module on there on sleep. And so I went and pulled basically just a crap ton of research on that and the the takeaway is that if you have poor sleep and shift workers historically have very poor sleep because of the changing in circadian rhythms you become extremely metabolically inflexible Mm. right and that's kind of what the study is showing that your body's ability to use carbs gets severely impaired Mm -hmm. your ability to use fat also gets impaired uh like blood glucose levels go up uh some studies that show triglyceride levels go up so you basically have more of these fuels kind of hanging out in the, the bloodstream, which we don't want them to be very high there. But then your body's ability to use them also gets impaired. They become very metabolically inflexible just due to poor sleep and sleep quality and shift work and things of that nature. 
Yeah, I know there's multiple things at work here, but I yeah. think counter-regulatory hormones, like I've actually seen that if you get um, just a couple hours less sleep than normal, your background levels of catecholamines like epi and norepi are way, way up. In fact, when we just presented the data in Ireland about how coffee increases uh, epinephrine response, you know, to brief lifts, um, we we did the best we could to ask people, did you sleep similarly yeah. to last time? You know, we didn't actually measure that. That's one of the things that was just a limitation of the study, but... We are trying to control for that, right? Because if coffee is going to jack your epinephrine, and by the way, the results from that study, I should talk about it in detail a little bit more later, but there were, um, oh God, over a 400%, if you, and the percents can be mis- misleading, but huge differences hmm. uh, during brief uh, lifts, just over like a half an hour of brief lifting if, you, oh, wow. if, you're, if you're jacked on caffeine before you do it. And the interesting thing is it, the exercise by itself didn't do it to the same extent, you know, as when you had the prior caffeine. But the point is, I was very worried about that control issue, right? Because if people come in with different amounts of sleep, their baseline epinephrines are going to be sky high, you know, and who knows how they're going to respond. So I needed basically healthy, well-rested people to drink the coffee and then do the lift so I can get my cereal blood draws for epi, you know. But, uh, yeah, so even just a little bit loss of sleep will drive up epi, and I think that's going to be a big part of this, right? Because although epinephrine will increase uh, fat breakdown, it disproportionately increases, like, glycogenolysis and things like that and shifts you, like you said, to more like a a carb-dominant, you know, uh, metabolism. It's just rough. It's just very rough. So Yeah, and on the epinephrine thing, that's one of the things I've I've noticed in myself, too, especially in the past, where... I knew I was completely hosed where you would have like a normal dose of caffeine. So say if you're using anhydra, say 200 milligrams. And then on a rough day, I would need say 400. And then you have a day where you take 400 and you feel like you just want to go crawl in the corner and take a nap. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, <laughs> this isn't good. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, to me, it, it suggests like you've got like Andy Fry's early stuff, like 40% yeah. down reg of yeah. um, like, um, beta adrenoceptors like adrenaline receptors you just can't respond you know because you're sort of strung out is already if you're probably sleep deprived or you have a high stress load you have all these other things going on the fact that you're reaching for that much caffeine is that maybe those systems are already kind of getting close to maxed out just for your current waking state you know so adding a chemical stimulant on top of that there's just no more left really to go. You're kind of at the top end of that already. Exactly. Yeah, it's almost as if your body's like, listen, you're dumping epinephrine on me night and day. You're not sleeping. You're overtraining, whatever. And I'm going to downregulate and try to blunt this. I can't take this constant stimulation. And that's why you're reaching for so much caffeine to trigger a response. Yeah. So, all right. Um, A couple of uh, listener mails. This first one is a question, and I'll pose it to you, uh, Dr. Nelson. Um. Let's see. This guy starts off saying, Hi, guys. If you're still looking for volunteers, I would be glad to volunteer myself and my girlfriend for your coffee experiment. <laughs> We're both amateur athletes, distance runners turned powerlifters. Well, that's, that's uh, thematic with our topic today with MC Powers. Um, and it says they're in the 2 to 2.5 body weight deadlift category. So not nice. bad. Not bad. Um, here's the idea or question for the show. This is from John. Uh, 
How does protein work on nutrition information labels? I know it sounds like a foolish question, but I would suggest that the majority uh, of the public that bothers to read the labels on food items don't know what the per gram serving actually means, myself included. In the episode the other week, you guys seem to suggest that some products might advertise a level of protein that ultimately isn't available, quote unquote, because of all of the amino acids not being there. Uh, he says in parentheses, you were talking about collagen. I found this super interesting, which as a sidebar, that's that's how you talk, Mike. I don't know if you've noticed. Like some uh-huh. of some okay. of the, our speech patterns, you love to say super interesting. Yeah. So Don says that super interesting. Um, Must be a good Midwest guy. <laughs> right. Uh, and have wondered for some time whether all of the protein listed in nutritional information is actually, quote, unquote, available, as some foods just don't seem to compare to others. Anyway, super basic, I'm sure, but might really be good for new listeners. Love the show. John. All right, Mike, what are your thoughts about looking at that dose in grams and whether or not that's available yeah, so usually when lifters are talking about available, they're usually talking about can that protein be used for what's called muscle protein synthesis, right? Can we take that protein and does it elicit a response of the amino acids from it, basically jamming them into muscle tissue to help it recover and be bigger and stronger? So in terms of available, all the amino acids and all the protein you eat will be available, they just might be doing slightly different jobs. Obviously, we tend to be very muscle-centric, but the, the gut's going to take a huge portion. You've got all your other organ systems and your immune system, and your whole body just needs to run, and it needs amino acids, especially essential amino acids, to do that. Uh, the example I use in class is if people ever pick up a bag of like pork rinds, yes. they'll say you know 15 grams of protein, and then right below it it says, some like, you know, not a sustainable source or not a high protein or camera exactly what it says, but basically saying there's no protein in this. (laughs) You're like, wait a minute, but it says protein, but it's the proteins that are not really the essential ones or for building muscle. So like now if we look at like collagen protein is very popular and there's some good data on that for tissue repair. So if you look up Dr. Shaw and Dr. Keith Barr's work, uh, they've done some very cool stuff on that, taking 40 to 60 minutes before exercise may help with soft tissue type repair. But you know, Stu Phillips and all those guys have shown for years that collagen as a protein doesn't really do anything for muscle repair. Right. It's very low in what's called essential amino acids. So I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. And, you know, now with a lot of plant proteins are very popular, sometimes if you get too low of a dose of those, you're not seeing the same response. And so one of the classic studies done from an acute response was 40 grams of a rice protein was equivalent to 20 grams of whey. But if you had 20 grams of rice, it wasn't the same as 20 grams of whey. You needed more protein to get enough, you know, leucine and enough essential amino acids to get that protein synthetic response going if you're looking at purely muscle repair. Right. Um, I think it's worth noting that I, I, I use similar things in class, like not a significant source of protein with the pork rinds. Right? Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly what I'd say as well. It's a great example, right? Like collagen, gelatin, like we're talking about like hooves and horns. Nobody's getting built yeah. on that, right? <laughs> so 
not really high quality. I think what we're uh, looking at here is not that the protein is not available. If there, if it says 20 grams of protein in that food item, there is in fact 20 grams. It's this is the protein quality discussion, right? And there's a whole class day I assigned to this. But so incomplete and complete proteins are the the beginning of that, right? There are 20 amino acids important to human health as far as you know, becoming proteins, bodily proteins, structures, enzymes, immune, you know, immunoglobulins and all that kind of stuff. Uh, of the 20 amino acids that are part of human proteins, roughly 9 to 10, depending how you define it, are essential or indispensable. It means you, you have to consume them, right? You, you can't just, your body won't make them. And so uh, plant proteins are generally incomplete because they're lacking one or more of these essential amino acids. As Dr. Nelson says, like whether it's leucine or all three of the branch chain amino acids or any of the nine or ten, really, that you can't make yourself. So it's the protein is there, but it's not very high quality protein when it comes to, you know, essential amino acids and muscle protein synthesis. So I hope that makes sense, uh, John, because essentially... They're not lying, right? This is why protein spiking as a concern came up a couple of years ago that there are, and there still are companies that do this. I even have some pictures on my phone uh, where they'll put just one or two cheap amino acids in abundance uh, or some collagen or a lower quality protein in abundance, and they'll spike it, right? So if you look at the ingredients list, it's in order of content. So if one of the first couple of ingredients in like a protein bar, for example, they're notorious, is collagen or gelatin. They're probably jacking up sort of what I would consider more or less artificially that gram amount. So you can't just look at the nutrition facts label at the grams of protein, but you actually need to descend down into the ingredients list, maybe unfortunately, and see what is highest on that list. And in the first you know, two or three ingredients, it should be saying whey or casein, frankly, they don't use eggs so much, you know, these days. Whey and casein are so versatile and such high-quality proteins. They're different, but they're both high-quality. So that's what you're looking for. Otherwise, you're going to artificially inflate that number. Um, again, the protein is there. It is, in fact, available, but not so much helpful when it comes to muscle gains. So so that's a little repetitive with what Mike said, I guess, but there you go. Um it, it, this this is reminiscent of the old question: How many grams of protein can I digest at a time? Right. Yes, that's what I was just thinking. And, yeah, and only thirty grams. Thirty. Well, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> you know, just out of nowhere. It's a good ballpark, actually, as it turns out. But it's not about you. You digest almost all of it, like ninety-two percent or something across. I mean, different proteins have different digestibility, but you know, you're way up there in what you're actually digesting. It's how much of those amino acids that end up in your bloodstream after digestion and absorption that you can actually deposit in muscle tissue and get bigger. And that has to do with anabolic hormones and a lot of other, you know, uh, synthetic processes in your body. But that's more on the back end, right? So Yeah. And the amount on that in general has actually gone up because one of the newer studies, and was it Morton? I could be wrong on that, but showed that when they used full body lifting and then did, you know, kind of some of the isotope labeling, uh, 40 grams was actually a little bit better, you know, because a lot of the stuff that, you know, Stu Phillips and some other labs have done, you know, just from easy use and there was, you know, not a lot of data, it was easier to use a leg extension or something like that if you're trying to get bloods and stick IVs in people and do all this, you know, very intricate work. Um, so, 
you can make an argument now that that dose has you know probably gone up over time based on the research too. Yeah, agreed. There there tends to be a increase, whether it's acutely per meal or even over the course of a day. Um, a lot of the the doses because I look at protein as more like dosing, and frankly, yeah. I, we default to this over the course of a day thing. You know, like 0.8 grams per kg per day for the gen pop kind of thing. Maybe double that for athletes. But I think it's it's way smarter to look at the acute dose. And I think you and I both do that. Like, it's a dosing. We're not just looking at it as, like, intake over a whole day. But, like, if there's a refractory period of a couple hours after you eat it, like, how do I max that out? And how many times a day can I do that? So I'm thinking about four, you know, acute spikes of muscle building, if you will, and how can I optimize that versus just some general notion of, you know, graze throughout the day? I don't know. So Yeah. No, I agree with that. I mean, I my general very simpleton argument, although I got just raked over the coals on this in a peer review recently that I spent two days trying to change, but um, four feedings of around 40 grams of a complete protein It'll get you pretty damn close. I mean, is that on the lower end of the spectrum? Yeah, 160 grams. But for for people calculating it, it's like, okay, if it, if it had eyeballs, it was a complete protein. You know, we're not counting the protein in your pasta and broccoli and all those things. Yeah, I get that they add up. But if you just count complete protein, try to get, if you're you know good size lifter, four feedings at about 40 grams of complete protein, you're going to be pretty damn close, in my opinion. Yeah, the high end, I, I really came into that. I was doing some calculations in, you know, average size versus large mammal individuals. Yeah, yeah. And in that ISSN paper, it's going to actually be published in December. But, yeah, the numbers, protein numbers can get really huge. So it's funny that you said low end at 160 because to people in sports nutrition yeah. like ISSN, they're going to consider that low end but I'm telling you, most dietitians are going to say that is crazy high, right? The RDA for most yeah. people is around like <laughs> 50, 60 grams of protein all day, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it depends on who's reviewing it. Isn't that interesting, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's, you know, some data to show that it's a little bit higher than that if you include the 90% outliers within the study and you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Right but, yep. yeah, it's – I just find that most people, even when you go into the kilograms, right? Because if you look at the research, it's about gram per kg. In the U.S., I don't even know how to convert that. So I always get in trouble sometimes because people are like, oh, but you said 0.7 grams per pound, and don't you know the research is done in kilograms? It's like, yeah, but yeah. most people in the U.S. don't think in terms of kilograms, no. so I just converted yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, they don't recognize that you're doing the conversion to Old English for them, you right. know, because that's <laughs> conventional, right? All right, I'll tell you what. um, There are a couple others here from Joe and Matt and some other. uh, I'll address those next week. I think we're going to table those because we're running out of time. So we're going to head to break. And when we come back, we'll join MC Powers about her journey transitioning from endurance sports to strength and how she's sort of now a hybrid. So we'll see her after the break. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. 
And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All righty, welcome back, everyone. It's Mike and Lonnie, and we have MC Powers... And she's going to talk a little bit to us today about transitioning between um, endurance sports, strength, and then actually she's back to running quite a bit now. Uh, but we're also going to sort of take a, a gender-appropriate look to this. You know, are there more challenges in one or the other? Because MC has done both of these things at a collegiate level. That's pretty high, pretty high-level stuff. So uh, our first question for you, MC, is maybe just tell us about like why? Why did you migrate? You were a, a pretty good runner, right? I mean, you're recruited to compete at a you know pretty high end university team and all that, uh, and then you migrated towards strength, uh, and now you're thinking about running again. Maybe tell us a little bit about about your story there. Yeah, for sure. So, um, kind of, I grew up running. I ran my whole life. Um, it was just the sport I did year round from, you know, second grade through high school and obviously into college, I still really wanted to do it. And, um, I had an opportunity to do it at, you know, a great university, a really great team. Um, and along with that came some burnout towards the end of college. Um, I had gone through a lot of injuries in high school and college. And by the time I kind of got to my senior year of college, I was really burnout and I was just, I wanted nothing to do with running at some point. Um, cause it had just taken over my life and it, 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 you know, I had to do it. I didn't really have a choice. Like I had to get up and run 10, 12 miles when it was five degrees outside. And that just, I kind of lost this luster. Um, but kind of from a career standpoint and academically, 
I migrated to the weight room as, you know, part of my career. So I was a college strength and conditioning coach. And in my senior year of college, um, I found the weight room as an intern and I was still competing uh, my last semester. And I started like some really basic strength training. I'd worked with a performance coach in high school and done some strength training and stuff. Nothing, nothing crazy. But um, in that last semester, some really basic strength work, I saw huge improvements in in my running times, in my 10K time, um, and how I felt while I ran, you know, just really basic strength can change a lot, especially when you're running miles and miles and, you know, beating your body up. Um, but as I, you know, graduated from college, I was done with my collegiate running, and I got a position as a graduate assistant in a college weight room. Um, I just kind of threw myself into lifting. Part of it was, um, I didn't want to run. I wanted to take a whole year, and I was like, I want to run whenever I feel like it. Mm. And if I don't feel like running, I'm not going running. Right. So um, then also it became a time thing. So I was really, really busy as a graduate assistant, and I had, you know, if I had 45 minutes, I could squeeze a lift in. I was already in the weight room. I could squeeze a lift in. It's harder to, you know, go and run and leave the building and get a run in. Um, So that was something that, it was kind of like ease of my schedule and it was also something new and different that I could, could learn and succeed and get better at, um, that I hadn't really, you know, tried to do that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of on my own terms too. Like I could, I could write my own plan. I could do what the other staff members were doing, kind of learn different things. Um, so that's kind of how I got to the weight room. Um, I don't know if you want to want me to keep going on how I kind of got back running um well first let me ask them so you said the strength training helped your running did having that tremendous aerobic base i mean whatever amount of that was left when you were actually making strength your job did the running help the lifting part at all or not so much um well it, it was interesting because i was training with the other staff members that i worked with so the other strength coaches and i we would you know we all had the same break of the day we would all you know the weight room was free we would all lift together which was awesome, um, and but it was very different. So we talk about, like, training age. So, like, I was working with some veteran strength coaches that had been lifting for 20 years, 30 years, right? And my training age was, like, very, very small. So, like, infant compared to, like, adult, right? So yeah. I we were doing similar programs at some points, and at some points we kind of figured out that, like, we, de- we needed different things. Um, but the pace that we went through the workouts, like we were doing sets of eight and I could just kind of go, I needed way less rest. My heart rate wasn't up. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. they did anything over 10 and they were like gassed <laughs> right. three minutes. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like you guys can probably relate to that. So it was different cause I could get through the same workout in about 30 minutes. They would take about 45 or an hour. And it's also like, it's all load based and it's all relative. So like my, it was percentage based, but still like my max lifts and their Mac lifts. So it was a little bit different um, from a pace standpoint. And for me, like coming from the sport I came from, like standing around for three minutes, I'm like, all right, let's go. Like, I I just didn't want to do that. Um, So that was a little bit different. Um, And again, like I said, we kind of figured out that we needed different things. Um, I needed the really basic stuff. So at one point I ran five, three, one, um, and I loved it. And that really helped me. Um, but if you're kind of a veteran strength coach, 
kind of he'd kind of done that before and they wanted to do like more fancy things and work on like super max strength where for me i just needed volume i just needed to be under the like time under the bar you guys know that like yeah yeah you just have to put the time in at some point um they had already done that and i was in that's the phase i was in um so it was a little different from like a pace standpoint i think that was where i think we saw the largest difference when we trained together mm-hmm. that makes sense um yeah we, we were talking with phil uh, just uh, last week or recently about, you know, does he do any high rep stuff? And he's like, no, man, we don't do anything more than 10 reps. And, you know, and, and I mean, th- when they do conditioning, as you know, like a lot of the, the yeah. powerlifter guys, they like to just uh, use sleds and that kind of stuff. They don't really go run per se. But yeah. um, now you said you were, you had some injuries from running. Was running harder on you than lifting injury-wise? Um, I would – I would say, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think it just creates a different type of soreness. So running made my, like my joints sore. Like I felt like I was 105 when I would walk up the steps, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but lifting makes your muscles sore, which is a different, a different soreness. Like I can, like my quads are sore. They're tight. Like I know I lifted heavy or like from running my knees hurt. Like my yeah. joints. That sounds that more impact. More pathological with the running. Like you know what I mean? More negative. Like sore muscles I I consider healthy, you know, in a way. Like growth, r- progress. But yeah. knees and that hurt. Th- there's no there's no good upside to that, I don't think. <laughs> no, and then and you know, I had some hip injuries in high school and they lingered into college and strength really helped that. So when I came I mean, I can kind of lead back in how I came back to running. Mm-hmm. When I came back to running after spending about, I don't know, a year and a half of just lifting, I felt so much better oh. when I did run. So having, I mean, I didn't reach like, I didn't reach ridiculous strength gains in a year and a half. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't competitive lifter material, but I had a way more strength than I did when I first started um, as a graduate assistant and getting back to running, I just felt so much better. My knees, my hips, my ankles, all those things. And I could withstand a lot more training. I kind of figured out. Do you so. think that was from like mobility work or because you're just so, so much stronger that everything was so submaximal now? I think it was just strength. So, yeah. I mean, also my body weight changed a little bit. So like when I finished college running, or before I started lifting at all, I was about 15 pounds lighter than I was when I finished uh, or when I came back to running. So um, I put on about 15 pounds, but I was still wearing the same clothes. So like I, it was, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's like changing what you already have, not necessarily adding a ton of extra weight. Like right. Recompose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like recomposite, like changing my body comp but without adding a ton of weight. Um but as I trained, so I came back to running and I decided to run a marathon. Um, it had always been a life goal for me to run a marathon. Um, and over the marathon training, I did lose some weight because I obviously wasn't lifting as much. So mm-hmm. um, by the time I ran my marathon, I was probably down 10 pounds of that 15, But um, which is fine. I wasn't lifting as much. And obviously, I'm going to run 26 miles. You need a little bit less weight's a good thing. So... Um, when I came back to running, like I said, marathon running had always been a life goal for me and I just wanted to try it. And I said to myself, well, 
I'll do one if I like it. Maybe I'll do another one. If I hate it, then I'll be done. So um, just kind of having the freedom to choose and make your own decisions like that coming from having had a structured coach and plan for right. my whole life. Just kind of nice. It, yeah. To me, a lot of running and strength sports, both there are sports you do as a grown up, as an adult, like post college, you know, you can kind of yeah. run your own program. You can walk your own path. And you can do yeah. it at a pretty high competitive level. Like you're talking about running a marathon. How many people can say they've done that, you know, uh, and that kind of thing? Yeah. So, uh, hey, Mike, I know it's earlier for you, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I, I know you work with clients that do both kinds of things, maybe more endurance or more strength. But what about you yourself? How far have you ever delved into the endurance side of the spectrum? Dare I ask? <laughs> yeah. Um I would say historically in the past, like not at all. Like in high school, though, <laughs> I, I almost just spit my coffee on the mic. Yeah, yeah not at all. <laughs> not at all. Because um, I was the, you know, six foot three and a half, you know, 156 pound, as Phil would say, an eel shaped rake. So running, and often <laughs> enough, I was not a good runner. I was a freaking horrible runner. So in high school, we had the the PE coach was also the cross country coach. So instead of, you know, teaching us how to run, he's just like, all right, kids go run. So like we'd run a mile and then a mile and a half and then three miles. And I'd be like the guy in the back who's just like dying with, you know, all the <laughs> humans that are twice my size. <laughs> right. Um, but recently in the past year, I realized that um, once, especially when I finished my PhD a couple of years ago, I was like super worried. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I get winded pretty easy. I got so nervous. I went and had a, a VO2 max test because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm at field mouse status. This is, you know, horrible. And it wasn't great by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't very good. It was like 37, I think, somewhere around there. But definitely on the lower side. Um, so that's over the past couple of years, I've done uh, more of that, especially more low to moderate intensity, you know, so the Phil Moffatone, you know, take 180 minus your age, so max heart rate of 120 to 140 type stuff. Um, and then within the last probably eight months, I've kind of mixed that up a little bit. I have a MOXIE sensor, so I can look at uh, local muscle depletion in terms of oxygen and then using that to do more programming. And I do feel better once I do more aerobic training. So I was gone for all July, didn't do much then, and then now I've done a little bit more since I've been home, and I think there's just the threshold where you just feel better, like lifting's easier, I can recover from lifting a little bit better now too. Um, don't plan to run a marathon or anything like that, but <laughs> for, for clients, then I just kind of alternate. You know, I have a little assessment that I'll have them do, you know, whether it's aerobic or anaerobic, and if they're really far off, even if their goal is just lifting, it's like, yeah, on your off days, we're probably going to have you do some just low to moderate intensity cardio. Yeah. You know, if your resting heart rate is 66 or in the 70s, oh man, you know, that's probably impeding your lift. So there's one study that's being conducted on that now, it's not out yet. But I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that too of even if you have a strength and power athlete, at what point do you have them do, you know, some type of aerobic training or conditioning? You know, even look at the guys like at West Side, you know, drugs aside, you know, those guys and gals are doing a ton of GPP. You know, they're doing a lot more aerobic, quote-unquote, training than I think most people would believe just kind of looking in. 
you know, my early days, um, MC, I don't know if you know this, but when I began lifting, I was also in, you know, I was pole vaulting, I was in martial arts, I was doing all this other kinds of stuff. But up to a point, the strength training made me much better in like my competitive Taekwondo and that kind of stuff. But at some point, it's no longer complimentary, if that makes any sense. You're carrying too much muscle mass. You know, I remember my my coach, who's also was a he's an exercise phys prof now, um, but my sort of mentor in Taekwondo, he used to say, Lonnie, you don't have to be Mister This or Mister That. You know, put the weights down. You know, <laughs> so what what was helpful early on? I think once you get to a certain level, um, it, it kind of forces you to diverge. If that makes any sense, you know, like you cannot be the strongest and biggest and also have the best endurance because you're just carrying. Dozens no, of extra pounds, yeah, yeah, of mass that just make make you gassed by the end of a of an endurance type workout, you know, and that's what the, yeah. the martial arts workouts were like. And I don't know about you, MC, but because you didn't actually gain, you just recomposed. You might not have felt a, a lot of that, right? I mean, you were at a pretty high level with both of these things. I mean, I know you said you weren't competing in strength, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, from a from a power sports team, like from, you know, I trained in the Olympic lifts a lot, and I really enjoyed doing that. I trained him mostly because I coached them every day. Yeah. So I, you know, wanted to get better. But I got to a pretty, I was pretty confident, and, you know, I power cleaned my body weight, which I thought was pretty good for, um, you know, yeah. not a huge training age. But, um, yeah, I didn't feel a ton of that, but at the same time, that kind of, it leads me into you really can't do both at the same time. Um, yeah, and, you know, like Phil, I, Phil says that. Level, yeah, Phil say. will say the man who chases two rabbits doesn't eat, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> or Bob, uh, my mentor and I say, you are, um, what was it? What was the saying? Jack of all trades, master of none. Mm-hmm. So you can't be, and I, I, the kind of stinks for me is I love them both. But time and life and just science doesn't let you do them both at the same time at a high level, mm-hmm. which... I think that's kind of part of our later discussion maybe, but it it can be a challenge. Well, let me ask about, like, genetics versus, you know, adaptation. Uh, I'm guessing you probably consider yourself more like type 1 endurance fiber, like born more on that side of the spectrum just because that's where you gravitated early. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think um, I learned this too, spending a lot of time in a college weight room around a lot of Division One athletes who are very genetically gifted. Um, you, know, you look like a, at a volleyball player and you just look at, you know, their power and, you know, them doing plyometrics and all those things. And I had to be really careful myself not to compare myself to those individuals from, like, a strength standpoint. Uh-huh. So, like, one, they weigh, like, 50 or 60 pounds more than I do. And two, they're very genetically gifted. So that's why they're probably going to back squat like 100 more pounds than me so right that's just where for me i had to be careful of where and i had to realize that like i genetically am not from a fiber standpoint and from a strength standpoint like that's just not where i'm at especially upper body strength mm-hmm. like i never i for my whole life i didn't train upper body so where i'm at right you know when i was a strength co- college strength coach it's like where i'm at is not i can't even compare myself to people that have been bench pressing for 10 years so i think genetics is a huge part of especially you know females looking to get into lifting that's a huge part of you have to 
compare yourself to yourself, like your progress and where you're progressing, not compared to everyone else, because I think it's so different. And again, it's your body weight too. Like that's why competitive lifting has weight classes, right? So you have to be careful how you compare yourself to kind of not be discouraged. That was kind of what for me, what was important. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, gender issues. Let's touch on that a little bit. Yeah. Good, good segue. Um, what about your challenges? Like as a woman uh, in endurance sports versus in collegiate strength conditioning, um, any, you know, pros and cons just uh, approaching these sports where you embraced more, you know, was it, were there fewer obstacles to get into running as a woman than the strength or, you know, recovery issues, anything like that? Like what's your, been, what's your experience been as a woman that's trying to do both of these kinds of sports back and forth? Yeah. So as, as a runner, I think running's really more of a, like it's popular for females. It's not very taboo. Like, Oh, you're a runner. That's a really common thing for females. Um, also, you know, I was part of a really competitive college team that was, you know, our, our female team was sometimes better than our, our, our men's team. So oh, had a lot of respect there, had great coaches, treated both our teams the same. So I was really lucky there. Um, and, you know, as you look into, you know, marathon running, I think, especially, you know, women in their later 20s, 30s, 40s, I think there's more women running marathons than there are men at that age. Um, I don't have, like, data to support that, but I think that it's much more common for, you know, middle-aged women to be running them than middle-aged men. Um, so, and there's also a whole lot of professional female runners that I kind of follow that I think are, you know, do a great job of supporting women in the sport. So um, that's pretty cool. But from a lifting standpoint, um, one thing is as part of the, you know, strength and conditioning profession, everyone knows it's very male dominated. Um, so I was the only female on our staff um, when yeah. I was in, in college strength and conditioning. Um, so I had, I had a great experience at the college I was, I was formerly at, but it, um, I think that more now more than ever, there's becoming more and more women that lift. Um, and I'm sure you guys are finding that through your podcast, right? You're probably getting more and more female listeners and more and more people interested in females that lift. So right. yep. um, I think it's going in the right direction. Um, and again, I think it's part of, for me, it wasn't, there weren't hurdles or challenges. It was just um, focusing on my goals compared to them. Like, or not compared to the other males in the room. So um, just kind of being able to hold your own and being confident in, okay, this is a great lift for me. It might not look like a lot for someone else, um, for the guys that I'm lifting next to, but for me, this is a PR, and that's awesome. And the people I was around were really supportive, and they they obviously knew that, and they were really supportive. So um, I lucked out, and I think that um, any female in that, in, you know, the lifting environment, you just have to find the right people to be around, I think. Um, and, and it can be a really positive experience. Yeah. I guess what I was thinking about was like, you have athletic cred. If you're talking to a 19 year old girl, you know, she's going to be like, damn, you yeah. ran it in that time. Or, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Whereas in yeah. the weight room, I mean, let's face it, college freshmen, sophomore males, not yeah. the most mature group as a whole, <laughs> Right, mm -hmm. and so they're going to do this alpha male kind of thing. Like if you can't, oh, yeah. if you can't almost hang with them, you know, why would they look up to you? Like why would I listen to her? She can't even, you know, oh, bench her sure. body weight, you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah, and that was 
I mean, I didn't think of it in that way, but yeah, that was totally an obstacle for me. So, I mean, I'll be completely honest. If someone was, you know, I worked with a, a basketball player who's bench pressing 225, I, I, I can't spot them. So that to me, that was part of it was just like the other coaches I was around um, having really great support from them. And the second I got some, you know, whip back from someone, they were right behind me and it was, you know, oh, right. stopped. And so that was a huge part of it is the environment that you're in. So obviously um, with the female teams I worked with, and I mean, and every team was so different. Um, but yeah, that's a huge part of it. But you have to, my biggest thing was show them how well you know what you're doing. Um, even if I'm not, you know, even if I can't walk up and power clean the bar that they're working on, teaching them and like coaching them through it so that they understand it and having them see results from me coaching them is a huge part of it. And also, you know, just getting to know them too is as much as, you know, kids these days, you just, you have to show them that you, you're interested in them as a person. Um, and they'll be way more willing to kind of listen to you and, and you're not just some, some person that's barking at them that they don't know. Right. We've had discussions long ago about the difference between being an athlete and a coach. You know, like, I imagine in a lot of ways, like, you are more on the athlete side of the spectrum when it came to running and endurance and more on the coach side with the strength, you know. Oh, for sure. And it does start – there are definitely differences. A lot of people think, oh, I'm strong as hell. I'm going to open my own gym and start coaching people. And they have no no idea what they're getting into, you know, because it's not the same ball of wax. And by the same token – it does beg the question, like, you want to have a certain amount of self-respect how, with how strong you are, you know, if you're going to be a strength oh, yeah. coach. But at the same time, it does beg the question, does a strength coach have to be the equal of his athletes or her athletes? Well, no, that's not her her role is to compete at that point, you know. Yeah, and that was always something we discussed, like, just because he's the biggest dude in the room, does that mean he's a great strength coach? And that was, and me and my me and my boss always joked about it and said, "Oh, he's a really big dude." I said, "But does that does that mean he's smart? Does that mean he knows what he's doing?" And for me, I always, with my female teams and stuff, like I I could hang with them for the most part. Um, but I trained, and like I said, I trained the Olympic lifts and I lifted because it's like practice what you preach. So like I wanted to, you know, say that I did it too, or I wanted them to walk in the weight room one day and see me lifting, you know. So that they knew that I wasn't asking them to do something I wasn't willing to do. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I think the gender is slowly kind of changing. I mean, even in the news, people probably saw that, you know, the Raiders hired their first, you know, female assistant yeah. coach franchise history. And I think there was another pretty high level dietitian hired by another team that I'm blanking on right now. But I think it's starting to, you know, slowly change, especially in sports that are kind of historically very male dominated. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And at the college level, I think, um, you know, half your athletes are female. So I think that yeah. female presence is is really important. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, for the female teams and for the male teams, too, like, that shows them that, you know, to kind of give a little more respect to the female athletes. Like, oh, hey, there's a female coach in here, and she works with these teams. And so I think that's it's really important. And I think um, at a lot of universities, they're – there is that presence on the staff, which is really good. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why diversity really, I mean, why do we value that? Because it can be a good thing. Like if you have an athlete, a female, and she's Mr. Period, or she's got a certain body image concerns, yeah. you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, I think she's going to go to you 
You're right. Mm-hmm. More so than yeah. the burly, huge, you know, um, <laughs> hairy strength coach yeah, guy. Meathead, you know? right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, okay. Just kind of winding this down a little. I have two quick questions for you. One is, I know you work in a, you know, for a large regional hospital chain now, and you're, you're a little away from the direct collegiate strength conditioning, but which part of your background influences how you train people or are you mostly managing stuff now or you know what part of this or is it equal parts influences the way you do fitness for like gen pop um so so the population i work with now is high school middle school athletes and then i do adult training which is just straight general population just um general fitness um so with the adults that i work with um i do a lot of strength work with them um they're it's a more we pitch it as a, a more advanced strength and conditioning course for adults. And, um, you know, it's 10 to 15 minute warm up, 35, 45 minutes of strength, and then short cardio at the end, five to 10 minutes of cardio. But um, kind of how, like I mentioned earlier, our pace is up during our lift. So, I mean, none of their loads are so heavy, they need five minutes between, right? But between sets. But, um, the bulk of that training is strength training. Um, I do mm. a lot of flexibility and mobility work with them just because, you know, as people age, flexibility becomes terrible. Um, and a lot of them just, you know, sit at desks all day and they need mobility and flexibility and just balance and need to just move better. Um, but so a lot of that is strength and a lot of that comes from, you know, my college weight room training. So um, the athletes I work with, I do a lot of similar training from a strength standpoint um basic strength for high school middle school athletes is super like that's just what they need to learn how to do just train um time under the bar kind of where i was um or just you know starting with their body weight and getting better um Mm -hmm. so the the weight the college weight room training i had influences a lot of what i do um none of them are really i don't do a whole ton of conditioning um with my with the high school middle school athletes with the adults we do a little bit but it's more uh like circuit based or um like short cardio at the end it's interesting to me that the strength part seems to be a bigger influence you know i mean most people it's funny how you say like so many more people go do recreational running probably than yeah than lifting arguably mm-hmm. arguably um but it's the strength and, stuff that you're bringing to the table that seems to be most helpful. I don't know. Yeah, and that's that's what they want instruction on. So a lot of them come to the class because I coach them in how to do it properly. So they're not just in a class. Not, it's a small group training, so it's not you know, 30, 40 people all trying to do back squats and doing them wrong. So it's four, five, six people, and I'm teaching them how to do it right. And that's why that's something that a lot of them really enjoy. They're like, I know I'm doing it right. I'm not going to get hurt. I'm not doing it wrong. Um, and so that's where a lot of my coaching experience comes in. Also, I mean, every adult I work with, I always say, everybody got something. So maybe it's a shoulder. Maybe it's a knee. Um, they got some sort of pre-existing injury or kind of just like nagging thing that bugs them. Um and I, I have to work around that for every person I work with. So that a lot of the training I did when I was a college strength coach, I worked with rehabbing injur, injured athletes with the athletic trainer. So they'd say, all right, they can, they can do this, but they can't do this today. And all those injury modifications you used to have to make have helped me be so much better at doing that with adults. Oh, right. I get it. Yeah. 
All right, yeah. last sort of bonus round here. What about mm-hmm. your eating? How did your eating change? We could probably do a whole episode on this, but yes. when you were a runner versus when you were in strength and now back to running, tell us about your diet and how you purposely structured that. Um, so when I was in college, I mean, running 50 miles a week, I just I was always hungry and I ate, you know, kind of whatever I wanted. I was mm-hmm. pretty health conscious, but um, from like a quantity standpoint, I would just eat because I was starving all the time. Um, and as I phased into lifting, I obviously I, focused, I was in a hypertrophy phase. I was trying to build muscle. I was purposely seeking out extra protein. So um, protein after I lifted, protein before bed, um, extra protein, like I would just do like, you know, chicken, extra chicken breast in the afternoon or something for my snack or whatever. So, um, that was more traditional lifters, like eating more protein. And then as I kind of faced back into running for my like marathon training, um, obviously a little more carb based. I don't actually, you know, I don't drink in that much protein powder right now. I'm not, I'm not lifting that much and I still seek out protein in my diet, um, Mm -hmm. but I'm not drinking, you know, two, three protein shakes a day. But, um, as a, as a runner now, I'm just more, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables, antioxidants, all that stuff for recovery. Um, lots of spinach and, you know, iron rich vegetables is something I really try to do. Um, as I run, I know that my iron gets really low. So mm -hmm. I try to, I I take a supplement and I try to purposely seek out, you know, lots of spinach, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then also, you know, just a little more carbs. So like when I was lifting a lot, I did some carb cycling. I tried to cut out carbs here and there a little bit. Um, now I'm like seeking carbs. So instead of just salad with chicken breasts, I have, I throw some quinoa on there or I'll throw some rice with it, or I add some carbs to, to my diet, especially near, um, near the weekend. So I do my longest runs on the weekends. So when I get towards the weekends, I try to do a little more carbs. I usually didn't do carbs at dinner as a lifter, but I now now I'm more with some kind of carb with my dinner usually. It sounds to me like when you were in a, even in a hypertrophy phase with the with the when you were in the weight room for your job, you still didn't mm-hmm. like recklessly power eat like bulk. You, it seemed like you keep you were focused on protein and not so much on the carbs and fats. So like you weren't trying to gain at all costs. You were trying to stay fairly hard, and you had to sort of a yeah. body mm-hmm. comp body image thing going on still. Yeah, I was trying to gain muscle and be mean. I wasn't trying to just put on 20 pounds of whatever. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. at some points, you know, you have to think, you you need more weight to move more weight, right? I have to weigh more if I'm going to eventually move sig- significantly more weight, right? Yeah. From a, I mean, training age can increase, you know, my maxes. But also, if I weigh 125 pounds, I'm not going to lift that much weight, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wanted to gain weight. Um, but I also didn't want to gain just any kind of weight. So like it was clean protein and it was like very lean protein. I wasn't just eating a whole pizza before I went to bed. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it depends on your goals, right? So yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I know you're pressed for time. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Yeah. Yeah, Glad to be on. Good stuff. Yeah. It's interesting for someone who's gone back and forth, you know, both as a competitor and per part of her job you know and how that's influenced yeah. where you are now and and that kind of stuff so all right good stuff well um yep thanks for having me guys you have a great day appreciate yep, your expertise you. take care thank you
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need. 